doctrine of the Trinity may be the most mysterious of all Christian doctrines. It's difficult to get our minds around how God can exist both as one single being and three distinct persons. Even with the challenges it presents, though, the doctrine of the Trinity has had some staying power and continues to be an essential teaching that is celebrated in every branch of the church, Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, or Protestant. What is it that gives such a challenging doctrine that kind of staying power? Why is it that the Trinity remains the first doctrine of Christian faith? So we want to ask first, what is the doctrine of the Trinity? And we need to start simply by defining what we mean by that term. The doctrine of the Trinity basically says that there's one God who is everlasting and infinite in power, wisdom, and goodness. That God has made everything you can see and everything you can't. At the same time, that God is three persons in unity. They share the same essence, the same power, and the same eternity. And the names of these persons are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We need to be clear that we are not saying we believe in three different gods. We believe in one God who exists in three persons. Now that's mysterious, but it's not incomprehensible. And I think there are some ways of thinking and speaking that will help us as we try to know God's triune nature in a deeper way. One way of putting it that I found very helpful is to say that within the one God there is both unity and diversity, both absolute unity and distinction. When we're talking about unity, we say that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. When we're talking about diversity or distinction, we say that the Father is not the Son or the Spirit, the Son is not the Father or the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father or the Son. So we've got unity, one being, diversity, God is three persons. Another reason that people often struggle with the doctrine of the Trinity is because the, because the word Trinity itself is not in the Bible. But if we keep in mind this dynamic between unity and distinction, we see that the authors of the New Testament are working with just that sort of vision of God. A great place to start is John 1.1, well-known verse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now that's a very peculiar way of speaking, isn't it? We don't normally talk about ourselves or anyone else like that. I wouldn't refer to myself by saying, I am Matt, and I'm with Matt. But John is trying to tell us something about the nature of God. He's trying to get us to think about God's being in light of the coming of Christ into the world. And he does that by pointing both to the unity that exists between Jesus, the Word, and the Father, and by pointing to the distinction that exists between Jesus and the Father. So when John says the Word was God, that being verb points to the unity between Jesus and the Father. When he says the Word was with God, he's pointing out the distinction between Jesus and the Father. So John might not give us the word Trinity, but his emphasis is absolutely on unity and distinction between Father and Son. And that provides the basis for the later Trinitarian formulations. Another passage that illustrates this dynamic between unity and distinction in the Godhead is 1 Corinthians 8.6. Paul says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Paul has taken up the Shema from Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. As a devout Jew, Paul would have prayed this prayer multiple times a day as a central part of his religious devotion. The Shema was a pillar of Jewish monotheism, declaring the oneness of the Creator God. So in 1 Corinthians, Paul takes this 
monotheistic prayer, one God, and places Jesus right in the middle of it. For us, there is one God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. And by placing Jesus in the middle of the Shema, Paul is emphasizing the unity between Jesus and the God of Israel, the one God. But he also makes a distinction, doesn't he? You have God the Father, and you have the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus is not the Father, and the Father is not Jesus. So we see that Paul, like John, is wrestling with a vision of God that embraces this tension between unity in diversity. Over time, the church wrestled with these texts and others like them, including texts that point to the relationship of the Holy Spirit to the Father and the Son. And the church fathers settled on some specific language that helps us talk about unity and diversity within the Godhead. When they want to talk about unity, they use words like being or essence. And when they want to talk about diversity, they use words like person. So God is one being, not two or three beings, in three persons. Being is about unity. Person is about the distinction. So if we hold on to this basic suggestion that the doctrine of the Trinity is aiming to hold in balance the unity and the distinction within the Godhead, it carries us all the way from the scriptures up through the centuries to the later doctrinal formulations of one being and three persons. Now why does it matter? We've got a sense for what the doctrine of the Trinity is trying to accomplish theologically, but we still need to look at uh, how it functions pastorally. What is the importance of thinking of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for our daily lives? What makes it more than just an interesting thought? There are many things that we could say. I want to look at two things in particular, and here's the first one. The unity and the diversity of the Godhead provides the basis to have a single unified church of diverse people groups. The goal of the church's mission is nothing less than the conversion of the nations. When Jesus gave the Great Commission, He commissioned His church to make disciples of every nation, to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's a sense in which that vision of the church as a single people drawn from every nation reflects the Trinitarian image of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When Paul set out on his missionary journeys, he did so with the goal of establishing the young church as a single body of Jews and non-Jews, Gentiles. Paul is the one who gives us this magnificent image of the church as the body of Christ, one body, unity with many members, diversity, drawn from every nation and ethnic group, every tribe and tongue. The church that Paul labored to build is a church that reflects the Trinitarian image of God. Revelation also, there the people of God are rescued out of every tribe, nation, and tongue, and they become one people in Christ. So the Trinitarian nature of God is the basis of our vision and mission of a church unified in diversity. And the other side of the coin is that a unified church points people toward uh, all over the world to a God who is both unity and diversity. One of the ways the church shows the world what God is like is by embracing unity in diversity as the church reflects and magnifies the Trinitarian nature of the one God in three persons. The doctrine of the Trinity matters because it gives us a theological basis for understanding the church unified and diverse in mission. Second thing I want to say about the importance of the Trinity is this. Without the Trinity, the world wouldn't know what love is. We wouldn't know true other-oriented love, and here's why. In 1 John, we're told simply that God is love. Love defines the being of God. Love is not simply what He does, it's who He is. 
the thing that it's hard to imagine love, it's hard to imagine what love would be like without both a lover and a beloved, one who loves and one who is the object of that love. Love in its truest sense means there has to be more than one person. So if God is one without any distinction or diversity, then it's difficult to imagine what it would mean for God to be love. Because before creation, there's no one, there's no thing for God to have as an object of love. But if your theological framework is Trinitarian, then you can affirm that before the world existed, before God made anything that might be the object of His love, in eternity past, the Father loved the Son and the Spirit. The Son loved the Father and the Spirit, and the Spirit loved the Father and the Son. Love requires diversity, and the diversity of the God who is love places the very essence of love in the heart of the God who is trying you. Love is not a created thing. Love is eternally essential to the Trinitarian life of God. The God who made us, who loves us, invites us to participate in that eternal, full, glorious love. So when we talk about our love for others, we need to understand that we are being invited to participate in the love that has existed eternally between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The love that defines the being of God. C.S. Lewis once said, I believe in Christianity as I believe in the sun, not because I see it, but because by its light, I see everything else. I think this is a helpful way that we, there's a helpful way we can adapt that quote to help us understand the Trinity. I believe in the Trinity, not because I understand the mystery, but because by the light of Trinitarian love, I can see everything else. Mm -hmm.